You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. First, we're going to hear a reading by author Jim Melusa of the beginning of his book, Into Thick Air, Biking to the Belly Button of Six Continents. The closest I've come to an expedition was my honeymoon. Six months on bicycles with no particular destination. Fate had dealt our little team two leaders and no followers. We survived because Sonia and I were linked not only by marriage, but also, for better or worse, by physiology. We had ants in our pants. Like dogs sticking their heads out of car windows, we liked feeling the world go by. All we really needed was a map. I'm a sucker for a pretty map, and a few years after the honeymoon I received as a gift the Times Atlas of the World. It was the size of an oven door, and with a little free time and just one beer, it was easy to picture places where rain hardly ever falls or snow comes in August, where people love Jesus or bend toward Mecca. To my eyes, the best map of all was a colored topographic plate labeled China West. I found it one evening while Sonia fiddled with her flute. Staring out from the center of the map was the yellow oval of the Taklamakan Desert, a thousand miles across and rimmed with ice mountains colored frostbite gray. The towns were arranged like the pearls of a necklace, evenly spaced along the foot of the mountains. They were oases, and the one called Turpan sat within a deep green oval. That shade of green appeared nowhere else on the map because no other place was like Turpan. It was sunk 500 feet below sea level. I urged Sonia, a geologist by training and disposition, to sit down and take a look at that great green dimple in the desert. What in the world, I mused, were those Turpanians doing down there? Sonia, who fears nothing but sunburn, took a look. Well, it could be a sunken block, she said with admirable if misplaced focus on the geologic situation. I said I meant the people, not the whole. Well, who knows, she said, and that was mystery enough. Three years had passed since our honeymoon, and we had the itch. I picked an excessively scenic route via Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, the back door to China, over the mountains. After one year, we flew from our Arizona home to the other side of the earth. With us in the plane were two boxes, and in the boxes were our bicycles and camping gear. Well, the pedaling made us happy, and the people saved our necks. The mountains were gorgeous and brutal. On our bikes, we were exposed to the winds, the wilds, the works, and this vulnerability pulled kindness from everyone. We lived on flatbread and woolly cheese lumps and fermented mare's milk, proffered by Kyrgyz herders, wearing coats that were little more than sheep turned inside out with the original owners evicted. Three weeks skinnier, we reached a 12,400-foot pass into China. The atlas was right. It was August and snowing. Back in Arizona, we'd imagined summer flurries to be refreshing. We hadn't counted on freezing. Far below was the Taklamakan, a glowing pool of warmth. The tourist literature insisted that Taklamakan meant go in and you don't go out. I wanted in. People say terrible things about deserts. They, they give them frightening names like Hellhole and Satan's Armpit. But to a man standing in a frozen mud rut, going down made perfect sense. Turpan was a hot and cheerful oasis of not-too-serious Muslims. They placed their faith in fruit. Their grapes and melons were a kind of miracle, 
grow not with rain but with meltwater from glaciers 18,000 feet above the town. Water was carried from the foot of the mountains in the subterranean waterworks of man-hide tunnels dating from the glory days of the Silk Road. At day's end, when the donkey carts loaded with raisins quit stirring up the dust, the locals hauled their beds from their mud houses and parked them beside the canals for the cool of the indigo sky and a little water music. No signs announced our elevation. Perhaps it was just the thick air, but pedaling below the usual level of the sea gave me the juvenile but real pleasure of breaking rules. One day Sonia and I lunched on noodles at a cafe that was no more than a grape trellis and tables with a view of the Tian Shan Mountains. The name means heavenly. But when I looked up at the dirty glaciers, I was thankful for our deliverance from those cold and windy cracks. Down was better than up, and it was only a matter of time before Turpon's burnt hills and friendly desolation gave me an idea. Why not visit the lowest points on the planet, the belly button of each continent? The scheme had two golden attributes. I wouldn't need insulated underwear, and I could ride my bicycle. And now for my interview with Jim Malusa about his book, Into Thick Air, Biking to the Belly Button of Six Continents. Jim Malusa is a botanist and a bicyclist. His first book is titled Into Thick Air, Biking to the Belly Button of Six Continents. Thank you for joining me, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Jim, tell me a little bit about your early career as a botanist and maybe as a writer. Did you ever, like, were you interested in writing as a kid? I'm afraid not. I mean, it'd be nice if I could have that story that I had dreams of, of writing a book, but I, but I didn't. I liked reading, and I liked reading a lot, uh, so much that my you know, mother had to turn off the lights and force me to bed. The, uh, the botany part of me came as... Uh, just a natural interest from walking around the mountains outside of, of Tucson and just wondering what the names of things were. And at the same time, I was becoming a budding writer. I think I became a writer because my memory wasn't that good, and I would take trips, and I would come home and, uh, and struggle to recall details, and, uh, and I just began to write them down, particularly from trips. And, uh, and my first real effort, I, I suppose, at writing was in 1981 when, during my very first bicycle trip, which was uh, began just outside the hills of Santa Cruz right here in California. And, uh, and I rode down to San Diego, where I had just uh, begun san school at San Diego State University. You know, that's a, a long ride. What made you decide to take a, a long bicycle trip like that? You could have just threw your bike on the bus and got down there a lot easier. Yeah, there's certainly easier ways to go. The, uh, that, that became to me, just I moved to San Diego State uh, University. Uh, I got there a month early, and uh, a friend of mine, also from Tucson, I mean, that I am from Tucson, Arizona, and I, I still live there. She came to visit, and she had just recently moved up to the Hippie Haven there by La Honda. And after her visit in San Diego, she said, I'm going home. And I said, wait, I can come with you. I'm going to put my bike in your car, and I'll just ride it back to San Diego. I had never been on a, on a bike tour, and, and uh, it was my first experience. But I was a backpacker first, and the transition to bike touring is, is, is simple. You just, instead of putting it on your back, you stick it in the paneers and, and pedal away. Um, could you, as a botanist, you're required to do a fair amount of riding, I would presume. And could you talk about the kind of writing you do as a scientist, as a botanist, and, and maybe how that impacted, you know, your career as a writer? I have to admit, I'm really not the, the best botanist in the world. I mean, I hesitate to call myself a botanist because the same thing that made me make a journal 
as poor recall of names, uh, doesn't make me the best botanist in the world because I can't remember all those those Latin names. The, uh, and so I'm actually, uh, I have my, my specialty is biogeography, and that is kind of mapping the locations of plants. So it's kind of travel and, and botany mixed together. The, uh, and so there wasn't much writing involved. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons uh, I'm, another reason I'm a freelance botanist is because to become a professor at a university requires the kind of writing that is utterly devoid of humor. And when I was writing my dissertation, I quickly learned that no one likes any kind of joke in a, in a scientific publication. You can't even sneak them in. They, they, they find them and, and, and ferret them out, and that's the end of them. And uh, so I think perhaps my writing uh, as, a, as a travel writer was almost as a, an outlet from writing as a, as a biologist where I wasn't permitted to have the, the kind of uh, latitude, and especially humor, that I could have in my writing. Well, how did you get your first gig as a travel writer? And what made you decide to write travel as opposed to political commentary or anything else? I didn't mean to become a travel writer. The, I was just, I began writing for the, uh, speaking of political commentary, for the Arizona Daily Wildcat was actually my first paid job. I was paid, I think, at least 10 possibly $15 for a column. That was essentially political in nature. Lawrence Livermore Laboratory was coming to recruit on the University of Arizona campus, and I was urging my fellow students to to consider the consequences of their actions. The Then I, from there, I just uh, went to larger venues like the Tucson Weekly, and there I did stories like that. The, uh, the sewage plant was in danger of being closed by the EPA for violating uh, certain water quality standards, and I got the idea to, instead of just going to the plant, to make it a little bit of a travel story. So at Bob's Bargain Barn, I got an inflatable kayak and, uh, and, uh, and inflated it, and my wife and I invented the sport of wastewater rafting and went down the effluent from the from the sewage plant, and it made a much better story, and I got to talk about the passing uh, wildlife, and and uh, as a sport, it was another failure, but as a introduction to writing on the move, it was it was perfect. And uh, after that, I began working for the Discovery uh, Channel and uh, for their magazine, and uh, the first story I did for them was uh, a plant biogeography story. It was the four corners of the Saguaro's range. The Saguaro's, you know, the large, famous animated cactus and it lives uh, mostly in Arizona and Sonoran, Mexico, but it had been thrown all about the country by the media and golf courses. You can see it in Palm Springs, Vegas, New Mexico. It doesn't live any of those places naturally. So the point of my story was to go and find the northernmost, southernmost, easternmost, and westernmost of the worlds. And so there was the, I had to get there and find the little devils, and uh, and then I would talk about why they stop there and they don't go any further. So that's that's how I got into travel writing. Oh, the Discovery Channel is a, is a pretty good gig, and uh, it seems to me that uh, I, I love this idea of one of the you talk in the book about one of the things they they pitched at you at uh, one way ticket to nowhere. <laughs> Tell us about that. That's a pretty great idea. The idea for for riding to the Pits came during an earlier bike ride with my wife to Central Asia, and uh, in which we just saw a lovely map in the Times uh, Atlas of the World, and saw a green dot on the map. And it was called Turpan, and it was 500 feet below sea level, and yet it was at the foot of tremendous mountains. So uh, the natural uh, plan was to take two months going over the mountains to reach the pit, and. Uh, 
and we did that and along the way froze and uh, until we got to the, to the hole it was August and thought you know the pits are really okay and uh, but nothing came of that idea it was pretty much like the wastewater rafting I thought it'll be it'd be interesting to go visit every the lowest points on earth and nothing came of it though until uh, the internet became popular in 1996 by that time I was working for Discovery and they came up with the idea of sending me with a digital camera and a computer and a satellite telephone to some place on Earth that nobody knows about, uh, including myself. <laughs> and the notion was <laughs> that there'd be a story in me and my efforts to find my way home. And uh, the editor said, well, call it one-way ticket to nowhere. Uh, think about it. And I thought about it, and I realized, you know, suddenly... Riding your bicycle to the lowest point on earth seemed utterly reasonable. <laughs> and so I presented it as a, as a possible job. I said, you want me to go someplace odd that no one's heard about? How about if I ride my bike to the lowest point in Australia? Now, when, you, uh, when they kitted you up for this, I, I'd like to talk about what they gave you and why they gave it to you. And, and I mean, the satellite phone, computer, this kind of stuff. This is, you know, uh, maybe a little bit difficult to transport on a bicycle. It was heavy. The, uh, and I give Discovery credit in, though, in, in equipping me not only with uh, the technology, but a, but a man named Doran, Doran Burrell, who uh, trained me essentially in using the equipment. And so it was about 13 pounds of electronic gear. And I would just pack it in one of my panniers just as if it were, you know, a massive load of top ramens and a sleeping bag and, and towed it away. It was actually very simple to use once you, once you figured it out. The satellite phone is just like a laptop computer. You used it. You opened it up, aimed it at a certain point on the, the horizon, and plugged in the computer, and it worked. And uh, thank goodness it never completely broke down or it would have been helpless. Now, uh, let's talk about your, your journey in Australia, because when I looked at these on the map, I'm getting the feeling that you didn't exactly choose the shortest, the most UTL, or the easiest bike ride from where you would, could arrive in Australia to where you wanted to go. So the place you wanted to go is a place called Lake Erie? Lake Air? Lake Air. Lake Air. How did you design this journey? I mean, I think half the fun in travel is, is designing the trip and imagining the trip and going over the maps and, and, uh, and, and, and seeing, uh, anticipating what, what's coming your way. And then, of course, being utterly wrong in the end. But you do your best. And when you're on a bicycle, you consider the winds, the rains, uh, and even the direction of the sun. The, uh, if you're in the southern hemisphere, it's nice to pedal south. Uh, because then the sun will be at your back and the back of the people that are approaching you in their in their cars. And so these were I took all these into consideration. Also, Lake Air is in a desert. All the low points are in deserts. And uh, I thought, well, it'd be nice to see something uh, different, something different than Tucson. I live in a desert, and so I began in the the tropics in northern Australia. And uh, and that's how I chose all the trips. I would uh, take into consideration the mainly the weather the possibility of getting supplies, and after my experience in the, the Mideast, trying to get a satellite telephone through Egyptian customs, they, uh, they took it for a week, I tried to make my trips in one country rather than crossing international borders, so I didn't have to take my, essentially, which was a, a spy outfit, right, a satellite phone and a digital camera, so I would begin in one country and stay in that country all the way to my destination. 
this book is very funny, and you write very well uh, humor. Could you talk about integrating the humor, though? You find humor in pretty much everything. It's Your prose is, is really great. Well, thanks. <laughs> the... Uh... And the funny thing is, I think it's funny, too. The, uh, and perhaps that's why it, <laughs> it pops up everywhere. And uh, but usually there is a funny side to almost every situation. And I think I can, uh, I can thank my mother for this, perhaps, and my family in general. They're all, they're all funny. And, uh, and I have no idea why they're, why they're funny. But even now, I mean, after years of uh, the same jokes and, uh, you know, asking at the dinner table, who wants blueberry pie? You know, we all go, I do. And she goes, oh, I wish I had made one tonight, you know, or, that was the kind of humor I, I grew up with, <laughs> and uh, and so I'm happy that it's it's survived and uh, and it makes the book what it is. Um, now in Australia, you have some unusual uh, road food, so to speak, literal road food. Tell us about that and why you chose to do that. Well, my idea to start in the tropics was. Uh, one that was formed based on just looking at a map in the world book and and, uh, and thinking that'd be nice. But once I really got there, I, I, I didn't like it that much at all. There was the danger of crocodiles in your camp and there's flies pursuing you. And then there was a, a cyclone that approached the shore. It didn't hit full on, but it proceeded to rain and rain and rain. And then when I ran out of dry underwear, I just had it and I had to the hitchhike like this. I'm not a kind of record-making kind of guy. It doesn't bother me to, to hitchhike if I have to. And uh, the people I, I caught a ride with uh, were in a, was a couple in an old battered Jeep, and it was filled with shotguns and soot blackened pots and a big bloody bag at my feet. And uh, the combination, of course, which scared me, but they were giving me a ride into a drier part of Australia. And they explained uh, what they were doing, and it became apparent that they were not murderers, but rather they were just uh, road gourmands, and they ate whatever they ran over. So they had hit a they had hit the kangaroo and just peeled it off the pavement and put it in the bag and saved it until it was tea time. <laughs> and when they got off the road, it was my job to build the fire, and they we just ate the tail. It was a little snack for for lunch, and uh, people want to know what it tastes like. It tastes, of course, like Meat. <laughs> Meat with a lot of tendon. <laughs> now, you had also a, a kind of a, a, a Monty Python moment in, in Australia with a parrot. It was dead, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, that Monty Python moment. <laughs> that was actually a little bit... I mean, you, as a bicyclist, you have to get used to roadkill. And, uh, and, but to see one of my, yeah, my favorite birds hit right in front of me, tumble to the road... And uh, it was a little sad. I, I did get a good picture of it since it wasn't moving any longer. And, and I learned how Australians feel about their, their parrots. And uh, I think at one point, I think they're just like very loud pigeons. They're, they're essentially sick of them. The cockatoos and the parrots and these, these incredible birds are, are very noisy. And they, they annoy them. Now, talk about uh, when you arrived in your first destination on this official trip for Discovery Channel. You've been sending back um, satellite messages and, and, you know, you've got your laptop. How did you feel when you arrived in that first destination? Well, when I was working for Discovery, the, there was a schedule. I had to send out a thousand words and, uh, you know, pictures every couple of days. And so there was a sense of relief of having finished the story. 
and also of, of I mean, I wouldn't call it ecstasy, but uh, it, was just, it just felt wonderful to be, uh, everything comes to rest in these low points, including myself, and uh, be able to spend the night there, particularly, and not have to run away as you do on, a, on the highest peaks, and just to relax with a little bit of brandy and the stars. So it, was, it was a nice feeling, and uh, I felt I had, I had made it, and I thought, you know, maybe I am going to do the other ones. Now, your next trip was to Asia, and this was in the Dead Sea. That's really low. That's significantly lower than anything else that, that you go to. Did you notice a difference being down that low? <laughs> I mean, yes. There, the book is called "Into Thick Air," and that was particularly because the 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 escarpment, the rim of the Dead Sea Valley, is many, many thousands of feet above the Dead Sea. So I came down from probably five thousand feet elevation down to minus one thousand three hundred fifty feet elevation, and you can certainly. You can feel it. The uh, mainly you feel it in your bicycle slowing down. The uh, because the air resistance is really is higher. The uh, boy, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, you go significantly faster at high high elevations on your bike. Now, um, one of the things that uh, interested me, you talk about a, a, a forty three hundred foot descent on on a bicycle in I think eight miles, is it or something? Oh, that was the yeah, the final drop into the Dead Sea. Into the Dead Sea. What was that like? That's really, really interesting. That's a, that's kind of must have been kind of scary. Yes, it's every bicyclist thrill to be able to. Uh, it's your reward for for climbing. The the uh, when you go up a long hill, you're you're often uh, taking the time to think about the, the work that you're doing, but also what you're going to get on the other side, and that is a, a big free ride down to. Some place you've been waiting to, to get to for a long time, and so it's not so scary. The bike has brakes, and there's frequently stories of rims overheating and tires bursting. And uh, but I've never. It's kind of like rattlesnakes and attacking you in your sleeping bag, and it doesn't really happen, as far as I know. <laughs> now, it, it, also in Asia, this is where you talked about. It. You took the path you chose. Was this really the Moses path? It was the Moses Path, and uh, you and didn't part in... the Red Sea, did you? No, I couldn't do it. <laughs> the, uh, I couldn't even get through customs. The, uh, it was entirely coincidence, which, uh, which to me is remarkable. That, uh, and so I'm, I'm convinced that Moses picked the most the scenic route possible. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about you know when you're traveling in the Middle East, uh, it's not something that, uh, frankly. Uh, allures me <laughs> to travel in the Middle East. And, and you, you talked about uh, your um, kit being confiscated. Uh, how, how did you take that? I mean, and how did the Discovery Channel take that when you weren't turning, popping up with a thousand words every two days? Well, it was a serious problem when my, my kit, as you call it, was taken by, the, by customs. And, uh, and there was nothing to do, though, except... Uh, Repeat what everyone is saying around you. In Insha'Allah, God willing, you'll get it back, and uh, and to do our best to do so. And of course, ended up making a funny story in itself. Uh, the efforts to to retrieve a satellite telephone from the the Egyptians. Besides that, the when people ask me where would I like to go again if I could go to any of these trips, I think it would probably be the Middle East uh, because the the outstanding friendliness, almost absurd hospitality, of the of the people in that part of the world uh, who essentially do anything uh, for you to, to make you feel at home. And they would never, 
at least in this part, Egyptian, Jordan, Israel, they would, no one holds you responsible for your country's uh, politics. They all, in their own experience, know that their president doesn't call them and ask them uh, uh, their opinion on policy, and, and no one expects you. No one holds you responsible. Uh, one of the, this brings up something about traveling on a bicycle that's, I think, uh, uh, makes your journey really different because a bicycle is a, a pretty humble form of transportation. Uh, it, it it doesn't draw attention to itself. In fact, it draws attention more to your uh, poverty. Uh, and so you have a different interaction with the people you meet. You meet a different kind of people. Could you talk about how that played out, especially in the Middle East? You know, the bicycle allows you I'll call it access to, to people that you just couldn't ordinarily approach. You certainly couldn't drive up to them in a big steaming SUV, chrome glinting in the sun. But on a bike, you can just ride up. And, and it's, it's not only that you can approach them. I think they actually feel uh, sorry for you. <laughs> they, uh, and they want to know if they can help. Maybe you need a drink. Maybe you need directions. And uh, the response of people to a traveler on a bicycle is, is, is one of, uh, of sympathy and curiosity. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing for a traveler. Now, in Europe, you're going to the Caspian Sea. Why did you start in Moscow? Well, I really wanted to stay in one country all the way to the Caspian Sea. And, uh, and so that pretty much left me with one choice. If I wanted to have a month's ride mm -hmm. uh, to get there, and that was to begin in Moscow and stay in Russia all the way there. I mean, some of the other alternatives were Iran, or which was, I mean, they would never let me in with the, mm -hmm. with the satellite phone. There was Kazakhstan, the same problem there. The, uh, and so I just kind of made a big loop around the, on my map and my imagination around the Caspian Sea and found the one that was, uh, that it seemed possible to do. And I'm glad I did it in the end. It wasn't the, a natural route because it went through the equivalent of Iowa, the, the breadbasket of, of Russia, the most topographically uninteresting part. But it had the added advantage of uh, there were no tourists there. And so once again, I was a, a curiosity and an oddity, and the, the people treated me nicely. Uh, that sounds nice. I, could you talk about one of the things that you do well in this book a lot is um, that you use truth. Uh, to, you just, by telling the truth, you manage to evoke humor. And that's a really interesting uh, effect that you, you do. You kind of get down and, and tell us something that in a way we don't expect to hear. We sometimes expect the sugar coating and you uh, tend to remove it. This takes a long time, you know, in the development as, as a writer to realize that. And that's all in the, in the I think, in the, in the rewriting process. Whenever you don't tell the truth, it becomes apparent to yourself, and uh, and you just have to think: Did I really? Did I really like that? Because we we all grow up, I think, knowing what you should like and what you shouldn't like. I mean, and, and traveling is like that. You think, you know, I should I should like these these kind of landscapes. I should like uh, I should like mountains. I should like I mean panting, uh, oxygen-deprived adventure. And it took me a long time to, to realize, you know, what I really like is, is the desert. And, uh, and so that kind of truth, I think, comes out uh, throughout the book. The other truths that are humorous are truth uh, revealing your own mistakes and, uh, and failures and, uh, and, this, and speaking that about yourself, which 
luckily I, I find amusing and certainly others do. Uh, you talked uh, about rewriting, and that's that really interests me. Now, how much of this book was written on the journey, and how much did you rewrite, and how did you do that? I, I pedal my bike just wearing a regular shirt with a breast pocket, and inside that pocket is one of those little spiral-bound notebooks and uh, and a pen. And I, if I can, I'll write while I'm still moving. If I can ride no hands, I can do that on an open road. Really? <laughs> Are you kidding? You're riding your bike with no hands writing? <laughs> well, for, just for very brief entries, something like sexy purple stigmas or something like that of a flower, some, some idea that I get that I realize I'm never going to remember later, and so I better put it down right now. And, uh, and if I can't do it uh, on the roll, I'll stop and jot down things. And I do that all day long. It's usually uh, dialogue if I've met someone and, uh, or I guess the, the smell of things, the look of things, the clouds and rocks. And then later, usually much later, the next morning is when I do most of my writing and I make a complete uh, an account of the previous day in my journal. And then for discovery... That would pretty much go on the on the page very uh, changed very little. I didn't have enough time to do it. I would do as much as I could, and uh, and that's what I was left with after my stint with Discovery. To write the book took another probably a couple of years of of writing and uh, and research and working as a botanist too. It was hard to tell sometimes when the when the writing ended in the and the botany began <laughs> because I would be working in the desert supposedly looking for this but actually thinking about the, the story that I was working on. There's a lot of great, uh, you do a good job of, of uh, mixing in um, history uh, of the places you're going, uh, historical tidbits, stories of what you're, what's happening and the science. And I'm wondering if you could talk about um, just finding that history and deciding how to put it in. Where it goes in is, is, is the simpler part. It just suddenly I uh, reach a point and I realize I'm asking myself, well, what happened in this particular place or what's, if there's an unusual animal or plant, why does it look like that or who might eat that? And uh, the, the real question is of how much to, to talk about it. And, uh, and so that involves the, you know, the writing and rewriting part. And I tend to move along quickly in the book, and uh, meaning I would spend anywhere from a digression might be just a paragraph or it might be a, a full page. But typically I don't uh, delve in very deeply. And, uh, and this is something that is both what's right about the story and what's wrong about it. You know, someone that's interested in just a history, for example, of Russia, you know, isn't going to get enough to, to satisfy him. And, uh, but someone who wants to take a trip through Russia and learn about you know, the natural history and the history and what happens when you spend a night in a hotel and the, you know, the KGB comes by in the morning to check your passport, to wrap all these things into one story is, is what I try to do. And, uh, and that's what makes travel interesting, and I hope it enlivens the book, too. Oh, it's, it's really a, kind of a page-turner in that sense. Um, and you... I just alluded to the KGB, and we, you know, tend to think that maybe all that kind of commie era stuff is gone, but it's not, is it? Well, communism, I think, is. <laughs> but certainly, some of the suspicions that accompanied it of for foreigners is, is still there. 
and uh, you know, with good reason. And then they have they've you know it's, they've had some heavy stuff happen there in Russia, and they and they think they're they're wary and uh, and uh, if not exhausted, you know, it's at some point the. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised. I actually was surprised it happened as little as it did that I was questioned as to what was I doing and, and where was I going and whether or not I had the, the correct documents to do that. Now, in South America, you come into Puerto Montt? Yes. <laughs> I mean, could you have, I mean, how did you fly into there? This, I can't, it... There's a direct flight that takes you right out of, out of Santiago. Mm-hmm. And I picked... Uh, Puerto Mas, because actually I, uh, some students that I had met in San Diego when I went to school there had, uh, were Chileans, and they, and they lived there. And so I decided that would be a good place to begin. I also wanted to traverse the, the width of South America so I could experience everything from the Chile Pacific to the much warmer Atlantic on the other side and go from the, the rainforest to the, to the deserts of, of Patagonia and across the Andes. And so that's how Puerto Mont became my beginning of choice. Now, when you encountered an unexpected problem near the conclusion of your journey in South America, or actually really two, but (laughs) (laughs) tell us about the first one. Well, I can't uh, say that I went through the trouble of checking to see if any of these pits were private property, uh, because I assumed they they were kind of forsaken places and uh, every place I had gone no one was around the uh, except for the very first pit in China which was an oasis the uh, so I just assumed I would reach the lowest point in South America and, and have it all to myself but in fact there was a man in a pickup truck he's probably looking for a sheep or something who told me it's a it's a ranch that he worked on this ranch there was no ranch house to be seen or anything I'm sure it was a vast holding and uh, and so I I just said, can't you just go to another hole? And I said, well, this is the <laughs> this is the one I've really been dreaming about. I'd like to go here. And uh, and he said, you can't. There's no uh, there's no one allowed. You might start a fire. That's what he said. Like this. And I said, I promise I won't light a fire. And he said, no good. And he drove me back up to the highway, and I and I uh, tearfully waved goodbye and uh, made up a story. And I'm sorry to say that I actually just found another way to the lowest point in South America and slipped into a, a hollow and, and spent the night down there anyways. But I brushed out my tracks, and I'm, I'm hoping that Mr., uh, I can't recall his name at this point, uh, holds no no anger at this incident. <laughs> in Africa, you start out in Djibouti, which I know about because my son had to write a paper about it in, I think, seventh grade. Oh boy. I never even knew. <laughs> so, uh, I was, oh, right. Finally, that seventh grade education that's sweating bullets <laughs> over the world book, looking up what the heck is Djibouti, pays off. <laughs> so, uh, how did you find Djibouti? Well, your son's a step ahead of me. I had, I had never heard of Djibouti before I, I found it on the map because it was the lowest point in, in Africa, and I'd heard nothing of it. And of course, I mean, once you, if you've heard nothing of it, your, your imagination immediately fills the void with, with uh, in the case of Africa, the things large enough to eat you and potentially dangerous locals that might not be happy to see you. And uh, then you think about it further and you think, well, I haven't heard about it. That is either because no one's made it out alive or, more likely, uh, it's nothing terrible has ever happened there. 
and uh, and and it ends up the the latter is the is the is which is true, and uh, and so I began to to research Judy and Djibouti and find out more about it. And uh, at first it was it was very discouraging. I mean every book that had been written about it had names like the Hell Hole of Creation, and they they're and everyone repeated the same characteristic of Djibouti, and that is that the locals if they don't like you will castrate you, and they don't even wait until you're dead. <laughs> this sounds like not not a place we want to travel. No, not especially not on a bike. Yeah, no, I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that this led to, to further research and uh, and everything I found out from that point on. I called a Swiss photographer. He said, "Oh, this castration stuffs, it's just rubbish." Sure, they might have castrated a few in the in the old days during battles, but no, no one's doing that now. They're just re repeating it, and then I called the embassy, the Djiboutian embassy, and found out that. Uh, that the the locals, as he put it, he said, "Don't worry." He says, "Because uh, in Djibouti, in the afternoon, we're chewing the cot, you know." And he says, "It's just a plant, a stimulant, something like coffee." And he goes, "People chew it from one to around mm, seven o'clock." <laughs> and, and this might explain why nothing happens in Djibouti. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not clear the chain of cause and effect here. If people are chewing cot because nothing's happening, or if nothing's happening because they're chewing cot, but certainly now both. Both things are occurring at the same time. <laughs> People take a break. It's a nice social custom just to, to hang out and chew cot, which is a mild stimulant. It's no, uh, I don't think it's any stronger than espresso. And, uh, and you spend the, the afternoon in a shady spot just chewing cot and uh, philosophizing or yakking. Now, Lac uh, Asal, is that how we say it? Yes. Uh, the lowest point in Djibouti is kind of salty, isn't it? Salt is the original currency of Djibouti. The, uh, it's rimmed with enormous amounts of salt. And when I visited, I was surprised at see they were down there digging it up with a front loader. There were three men, and uh, it was this very small industry. That's it, three men and one front loader. They make a big stack of it, and then every two or three days, a truck from Ethiopia comes down and fills uh, up with many thousands of pounds of salt and, and hauls it away. There's people doing it the old way, too. People come with camels, and, uh, and there's some long poles lying there, and they just lever up these big slabs of salt and, and uh, time to the camels and, and vanish into the hills. And so it's something that Djibouti can offer the world <laughs> and uh, has made a good, good living off of it. Now, here you are. You're at the, the lowest point of Africa, and this is a pretty remote place for you. Can you tell me, just again, you reporting to Discovery Channel, how, how did you feel when you were there? I mean, Djibouti was, was an immense relief because I went to Patagonia and expected it to be this, the, this kind of striking uh, landscapes I'd seen in the pictures, and, uh, and I really expected to enjoy Patagonia a lot, and it was actually quite difficult. Uh, the winds were especially in Argentine Patagonia, were, were terrible for a bicyclist. So here was a place that I was expecting to love, and it, and it really had somewhat defeated me. And now when I went to Djibouti, here was a place I was prepared to, to hate, and, uh, and I feared, and it just, perhaps that made me like it more. You know, I really lowered my expectations, and I realized the people are really, really nice. The, uh, and one of the reasons was because nobody goes to, nobody goes to Djibouti for... To go to Djibouti, people stop by Djibouti. They would come by, and uh, 
and visit Djibouti on their way to see a giraffe or a rhino in another part of Africa. But as soon as a Djiboutian would find out that I was going to spend 18 days on you know, my bike in their, their country and go nowhere else in Africa, they said, nobody goes to Djibouti. And they would, but then they would smile and perhaps invite me to chew some cot with them. Your final journey was in North America. You left from home, uh, Tucson, to ride your bicycle to Death Valley. Just doesn't it sound like fun to me, but uh, I, could you talk about the contrast, having been to every exotic low place in the world, and then just the, the, your final journey must have been kind of familiar. Was it anticlimactic for you? No, it was not anticlimactic, and it was uh, was intentional because I mean, one of the big effects of travel on me and probably on others is how it changes the way you look at your own your own country it's a way i mean i'd come home from these trips you come back from Djibouti, and if you can you mean you take a shower and you when hot water this comes out of the faucet you just think my god look at that it's just (laughs) i mean it's just you you don't take things for granted you're grateful for the the smallest things and uh and so the uh it changes you in that way and i wanted to see how it'd be like being in being in America. And I certainly did not, uh, and I went through parts of the United States, the Indian reservations and deserts and Las Vegas and things like that. I went through places of of abundance, overabundance, you might say, and places where there, there really wasn't much. The uh, I was the southwest during the United States, the Sonoran Desert is my, my favorite landscape. And so it was a pleasure to be home again. And and it kind of weighed heavily on me, though, the, uh, the attitudes towards Muslims after the, the World Trade Center had fallen and, uh, because I had been treated so nicely. And, uh, and now to be here, and, uh, and, and especially in Arizona, where right after the World Trade Center fell, there was a, a Sikh that was shot simply because he, they must thought he must be a Muslim because he had a turban on. It was happened in Phoenix, actually. And uh, this made me worry about my country. And uh, but, as with my other worries before the trips, the worries were mostly unfounded. And the United States remains uh, my favorite place. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a glorious trip with a, with a beautiful ending and fine weather. And uh, and so I was very happy to finish it with Death Valley. Having been to the lowest places on the planet, I'm wondering, and being obviously a guy who likes deserts. And also an, an accomplished travel writer, I'm wondering what where are you going to go next, or what are, have has uh, the Discovery Channel already you know got a rocket ready to strap to your back and send you somewhere you don't want to go? I wouldn't mind working for Discovery again, but they've become less interested in these kind of kind of stories now. The um, simply because the uh, the online website is more of a TV guide rather than a telling long, uh, month-long stories. The, uh, so I don't think discovery is part of the picture. I think I'm going to return to the desert because I've just gotten a five-year contract uh, with the United States Marines to map the vegetation of southwestern Arizona in, a, um, in an area adjacent to Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Refuge, which I had mapped previously. And so I'm going to be spending some time just wandering the borderlands of, of southwestern Arizona along the, the Mexican border and, 
and it's a lot like bicycling. I'll have some time to myself, and uh, and I believe my my next book would be about uh, thirst. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Jim Melusa. His new book is Into Thick Air, Biking to the Belly Button of Six Continents. Thank you for joining me, Jim. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.